собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who, may, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Ivan the Terrible is infamous as a sadistic despot responsible for the deaths of thousands of innocent people, particularly during the years of the Oprishnia, his state within a state. Ivan was the first ruler in Russian history to use mass terror as a political instrument. However, as my guest Charles Halperin argues, Ivan's actions cannot be dismissed by attributing his behavior to insanity. Ivan interacted with Muscovite society, and this interaction needs to be understood in order to properly analyze his motives, achievements, and failures. Charles Halperin is one of the foremost historians of medieval Muscovy. He is an independent scholar and resides in Bloomington, Indiana. He's written several books on early modern Russia, including Russia and the Golden Horde, The Mongol Impact on Medieval Russian History. His new book is Ivan the Terrible, Free to Reward and Free to Punish, published by University of Pittsburgh Press. Here's Charles Halperin. So uh, I thought we'd start this this interview. I, I'm, I was really happy to see that first I, I saw that you were um, publishing a book on Ivan the Terrible, and I was I was looking forward to it. And then I was very excited when I received it in the mail, uh, since you know I think uh, a kind of reevaluation of Ivan is a long time coming. But before we get into the book, uh, I'd just like to have you introduce yourself. Well, uh, I was uh, born in Brooklyn, New York in 1946. I got my bachelor's degree from Brooklyn College in 1967 and my PhD from Columbia University in 1973. I'm a specialist on medieval and early modern Russia, which is defined very broadly as anything before Peter the Great. Uh, until I started working on Ivan the Terrible full-time, my major research interest was the Mongols in Russia, which I published quite a bit. And uh, I still occasionally write something when I'm asked to help, uh, help someone out, uh, but mostly Ivan the Terrible. What, what, what drew you to study uh, medieval and early modern Russia? Between 1967 and 1973, I knew I, I, I started taking courses in, in medieval and early modern my first year as a graduate student. I always intended to do the earlier period. I thought if, if, if that didn't work out, I would do modern Russian history because I knew I was going to do Russian history. Uh, but uh, I got very lucky in that my advisor uh, became... Uh, Michael Chernyavsky, who would inspire anybody to do anything, uh, and therefore I stayed with the early period. And what drew you? What what interested you about the early modern period as opposed to say modern Russia? I can't say for sure. And uh, thinking back, I I thought a uh, when I was uh, in public school, I went to the local public library and I wound up reading every book in there. Their, their children's history section. <laughs> and I think what happened is I read a book on, on Russian history, and I just liked the pictures for the medieval period. Well, that's, that's as good enough a reason as any. I, it was then. Uh, it, 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 in retrospect, my choice might have been influenced by the fact that uh, the closer you get to modern Russian history, the more you get into politics. And I wasn't interested in that. 
Uh, although I could easily have done Imperial Russia and not been not been disappointed, but I was no way I was going to do Soviet history. I just didn't want to argue with people about communism. It's just. <laughs> I could live without that. Fair enough. Um, and, and you know, the, the thing about, <clears throat> as as somebody like myself, I didn't specialize in early modern Russia, but I find it fascinating. Uh, you know, how do you, looking as somebody who's been involved in this, this area of Russian history for so long, how do you view it and, and, and specifically, like, what are some of the, the challenges of doing this type of history? The, the biggest question you have to confront in doing medieval and early modern Russia, as opposed to elsewhere, is not the lack of source material, because all medieval is still with that. And it's not the problems of interpreting the sources, because all historians do with that. You have to confront the problem of Russian exceptionalism. You have to deal with the fact, are you going to compare Russia to, to Europe, or are you going to contrast Russia to Europe? Because uh, no matter what you study, you will run into that problem. In the Mongol question, it was always, you know, did the Mongols put Russia on a path that was not European or was Russia already on a path that was not European? And this unfortunately becomes a very controversial question because Opinions on Russian exceptionalism do not really differ based upon whether you're dealing with Russians or or foreigners. Uh, some Russians are completely in favor of Russian exceptionalism; others are not, and some Westerners have, all, have long been in favor of Russian exceptionalism. And nowadays, there's a good school of thought, certainly for medieval and early modern, which I know best, which see it says they're not identical, but the the, the similarities are sufficient uh, that you can use analogies from Western Europe to help uh, elucidate uh, medieval and early modern Russian history. And that is a very big conceptual step. But, you know, it, in a way, this, this idea of Russian exceptionalism seems to me that it's based on an idea of also Russian isolationism. And we know now more and more that Russia was very much interconnected in a regional. You can be interconnect, interconnected and different. Uh, uh, the question is not really whether they interconnected, but whether they were influenced. And uh, that's what usually it uh, becomes a very a strong talking point. Uh, because uh, no one would argue that during the Cold War, the United States was influenced by the Soviet Union. We didn't imitate them. We didn't borrow anything. But we were in intimate contact, and we were very familiar with them. Uh, so the question is not so much contact uh, as uh, the impact of that contact. Also, for the medieval and early modern period, you have to deal with Russian regionalism. Was contact or perhaps influence stronger in some regions, such as you know the city of Novgorod, than it was in others. Usually, that means Muscovy. And where do you, where do you fall on these questions? Well, Chernyovsky was a big co comparativist, and I've always thought that that Russia was a European country, uh, and that its patterns of history were not that much different. The biggest thing I learned when I became a professional. The biggest conclusion I reached when I was a professional is that there is no such thing as European history. If you think European history means a single model to which all countries confirm, uh, conform, it didn't happen that way. So once you admit that there are differences among European countries, it's much easier to say, well, there are also some differences with Russia, but that doesn't disqualify it from being European. Well, let's turn to uh, your book on Yvonne the Terrible, which is, is called Yvonne the Terrible, Free to Reward and Free to Punish. And, you know, as you well know, there are many, many books dealing with Yvonne the Terrible and the period of his reign. What inspired you to, to uh, turn to this topic? Basically, I was dissatisfied with all those other books. 
I I was uh, I had been taught uh, by my Columbia professors in modern Russian history, who are Mark Reif and Leopold Hameson, that uh, political history is in intimate contact with social history. You can't separate the two. And I had not seen a book on Ivan the Terrible, uh, even from a Marxist point of view, which has its own premises, which make answering the question easier, which depicted Ivan and Russian society as interacting with each other. I thought the best way to understand Ivan would be in tandem with his reactions and actions in Russian society. The problem with that, of course, is that Ivan biographically and Russian society are not stable targets. They're moving targets. So you're dealing with the interaction of two entities that are in the process of evolving, which makes it harder. The other thing is that the, the, the most prevalent interpretations of Ivan in all the books I read, let's leave aside the Marxist one, which had become obsolete. I started the project after the fall of the Soviet Union. didn't have to argue that anymore. <laughs> uh, the biggest theory was that Ivan was insane. And I very rapidly reached a conclusion that that was really just an admission we didn't understand him. I mean, I'm all in favor of psychohistory up to a point, but insanity doesn't explain what Ivan did, because there are some things he did that look perfectly rational, and there are other things that look insane. But people who are quite sane do stupid things, do cruel things, uh, pursue failed policies. Uh, are such egomaniacs, they don't listen to anybody who tells them they're doing the wrong thing. So insanity becomes an excuse for saying, we disagree with this thing that Ivan did. Well, that doesn't get you anywhere. Moreover, even people who are insane live in a world that's rational from their point of view. I did some reading on on, uh, in psychohistory. And they all say that insanity is, is, is... not the same in all ages and in all places. What people think is insane is a social construct. No one in Ivan's time called him insane. Uh, neither the foreigners who hated him nor the Russians who hated him. They just said he was a tyrant. And they didn't think of a tyrant as being insane, just evil. And therefore, they had no motive to go beyond that. And I found books in Russian history, very recent books, which think calling Ivan a tyrant is also an adequate explanation. It solves everything. He executed people who were innocent because he was a tyrant. Well, why was he a tyrant? Why did he choose these people to execute, not others? Why did he choose this policy and not others? Just because he's a tyrant doesn't answer those questions. So I wanted a much more sophisticated, nuanced approach to Ivan which I could not find. I found a lot of enormously useful stuff. I mean, I could not have done my book without the the thousand books and articles I read. But I didn't find a synthesis, a coherent theory, which would uh, encompass all of Ivan's reign, all of Ivan's actions in a, a, a credible and persuasive way. So that was my ambitious goal in doing the book. Do you, do you think that the 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 tendency to view or label Ivan as insane is also connected to the question of Russian exceptionalism? It shouldn't be. Uh, I I can't answer that question in part because I don't know enough about uh, Europe. But I did read about other European rulers who were called insane, and therefore. Uh, no one who calls Ivan insane should think only Russian rulers are insane. The harder part is uh, an insane ruler in uh, a country which has a different political structure than Muscovy would be treated differently uh, because there would be political checks on his authority. This conception of Ivan's insanity, I find very widespread. Ivan was insane, but he could get away with being insane because of Russian exceptionalism. 
because Russia did not have uh, any constitutional legal methods for restraining the ruler. Whereas if the king of Sweden or, or some Italian condacieri or prince is insane, there were mechanisms which would limit his authority. So it's not the insanity itself uh, which distinguishes arguments about Ivan's insanity from arguments about other rules and other places being insane. So your book is is very much, I mean, not only is it uh, about Ivan personally, it's also about mostly about the wider context in which he exists, as as you've already stated. So describe Muscovy in, in, in the 16th century in the context in which Ivan grew up. In, in many ways, uh, I'm convinced that Muscovy in the 16th century and Ivan's time was typical of European monarchies at the same time. Granted, it did not have Roman law, which influenced the uh, political system, but it was a monarchy, a hereditary monarchy. Uh, it had a hereditary aristocracy. Uh, it was largely an agricultural country, but it had considerable trade and considerable uh, use of money. Uh, the problems that Ivan faced uh, in building what we consider a modern state structure, building a state, state building, were the same as those faced elsewhere in, in the broadest terms. Also, uh, the techniques he used, uh, I mean, Ivan was not the only person to execute people who were his political opponents. He was not the only person who relied upon his nobility to control the peasant population. Uh, he uh, patronized trade both by himself and by Russian merchants. Uh, the state was expanding. This is also true. He was constantly at war, which is also true. We get the beginnings of the impact of what's called the gunpowder revolution in Muscovy as we get it elsewhere. As always, the gunpowder revolution affected different states at different uh, tempos. But he's got a professional infantry with 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 uh, uh, arc poussier or muskets, as I call them. Uh, so he's and they've got a great artillery in the Russian army in the 16th century. So he's part of that. So I think that the, the Muscovy was what we would call a traditional society in in early modern terms. That is. Uh, Social status was largely inherited, but there was room for upward and downward social mobility. Uh, the monarch uh, was hereditary, but ruled in conjunction with an elite, which could include both nobles and bureaucrats. And the problems they faced were the same as everywhere. Uh, even Ivan, who's supposed to have been, supposed to have had more power than any other ruler in Europe, which is silly, did not have the technological ability to influence all Russians. Uh, in the absence of modern technology, no early modern ruler could do that. Uh, someone once pointed out that a modern democratic elected president has more power over his people than any early modern monarch simply because of technology. So we, when we talk about how much power Ivan had, Unless you realize the technological limits, and of course, Russia is a huge geographic space, uh, and during part of the year, you can't get there from here. <laughs> so uh, when we talk about the power of a monarch in all countries, we're really talking about his effect on people in the capital who, are, who have proximity to him, and his effect upon the elite. One of the funniest things to me about whenever I read uh, descriptions of Ivan's unlimited authority is how much of his correspondence is complaining to his own officials that they're not carrying out his orders. I wrote you before you should not take taxes from these people. They've complained to me again. Don't do it again. I don't want to listen to it anymore. Uh, so, I mean, we, we, 
we tend to, again, this is an example of, of generalizations about Ivan and what Muscovy is like and what Muscovite government is like, which lack context. They don't take into account the social and economic and technological conditions which inhibited the exercise of political authority. In a lot of the narratives about Ivan, it inevitably starts and focuses a lot and gives a lot of power to his childhood and upbringing to explain his later actions, particularly during the Aprichnia period. Um, and and you, you write, I think, quite convincingly against this. So what do we know about uh, Ivan's early years? Well, very little. And uh, we've been far too influenced by Ivan's uh, autobiography, so to speak, his description of his childhood, which is which is a uh, very partisan. He's looking for excuses for why he's doing things. He says, "Oh, I was mistreated as a child." The evidence we have is is largely circumstantial. Uh, we don't have uh, any memoirs from his wet nurse. Okay. <laughs> Uh, all we have are, are, are narratives and, uh, and government documents. And it is true, he, he never knew his father. Uh, he was three years old when his father died. And his mother died at, when he was eight years old, and he becomes an orphan. But I think a very strong case can be made that he was not mistreated as a child. He was not neglected. He was, he, 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 we don't know how many uh, domestic servants took care of him. But I suspect they were more than adequate to the task. Uh, he was well-clothed. He was well-fed. Uh, uh, he was protected. The primary job of the, of the Russian government when he was a minor was to make sure Ivan lived to be to, be, to his maturity because they were in big trouble without a monarch. They, they could not imagine not having a monarch. No one's proposing Muscovy become a republic or have an elected monarchy. So protecting Ivan, and of course his younger brother as well, was the highest priority of, of national security. And if, 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 if there's a passage which I much uh, like in the Chronicles, there's a threat that the Crimean Tatars are going to raid Muscovy and the question is, you know, is Ivan safe in Moscow or should we evacuate him farther north and therefore out of harm's way? And the Bayars are discussing this and the Metropolitan Head of the Russian Orthodox Church participates because he's uh, in some ways a mentor. And what, what the Chronicle says they said, which is quite credible, is he's too young to evacuate. You're going to have trouble putting him on a horse and driving, you know, and riding him a hundred miles north of the city. Well, that's a fascinating observation. Uh, it says that they not only know he's a child, they know that you have to treat children differently. Uh, so I don't think his his childhood was was deprived in any way. Now, was it traumatic? Of course, there were certain. Uh, events which were traumatic. But if you say that determined the rest of your life, you're denying Ivan the, the, the possibility of overcoming his childhood. And I think that's bad biography. And and when did he start getting involved in in aspects of statecraft as either part of his This is a this is a big source problem. Uh, even when Ivan is like eight years old, the sources say officially he's on the throne and therefore all actions are attributed to him. We know at eight years old, he was not making policy decisions, okay? But since they've already started attributing all decisions to him, we can't tell when he starts making the decisions for real because they're using the same language. If you look at uh, his behavior, the best guess is that he came to start exercising influence gradually. This makes sense in terms of his maturing maturation process, right? I think by the time he's a middle teenager, 
let's say 16, he's beginning to have input. I don't think he made the decision to be crowned czar or the decision to get married entirely on his own, but I'm reasonably convinced he had some impact, uh, probably more on choosing a bride than on uh, being crowned, but I think he had an, has an impact. Through the 1550s, I think that impact grows. By the late 1550s, uh, he is, after all, in his mid to late 20s. Uh, he has to have learned how to rule as well as reign by then. Of course, even when he's making decisions himself, he still has advisors and there's still people he listens to. So uh, you can't, I'm convinced he never reached a point where he thought he didn't need anybody's advice. Uh, and, and partly that, 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 that conclusion is based upon simple technology. He had to have people tell him what was going on. Uh, he can't read local newspapers from the provinces. <laughs> he doesn't have any briefing papers. I mean, he has to talk to people. He is somewhat uh, inconsistent in who he listens to. He changes advisors a lot, and the advisors he gets rid of don't always remain alive afterwards. But again, if you read documents that are not supposedly about Ivan, uh, but just how did the Muscovite state function? You will see that in many cases they're sending uh, orders to uh, you know generals in the field and field armies or to administrators in the provinces, which say in effect, "This is what we want you to accomplish. Do as you see fit." They don't try to micromanage everything from the center. Certain things, of course, they do. Set. I mean, policy is set in the center. Uh, implementation of policy, however, can be determined on site or in the field. This, to me, represents the realization by Ivan and by the central government that they can't control everything outside Moscow. And if they realize that, then it must have been true. They would not have reached that conclusion simply to avoid taking responsibility for what was going on. Given how long it took to communicate, uh, I mean, they knew they couldn't give orders that would be followed the next day. My favorite story on this is, of course, from 17th century Siberia, in which it took six months to give an order. <laughs> I mean, how much control can you have in six months? In six months, the purple you sent the order to may be dead. Uh, and this, again, is, is, is the kind of thing which the traditional historiography until very, uh, historiography until fairly recently did not take into account in evaluating how powerful the Muscovite government was and how powerful Ivan was. Talk about, because another main thread of, of his biography is the, the role and influence of various boyar families uh, around him. Talk talk about them a bit, and and what role did they play in in this Muscovite state? The uh, the there are several what I consider to be myths about the Muscovite aristocracy, uh, and the biggest myth is that they were servile. Uh, that's because, in in the opinion of some Western historians, they didn't overthrow Ivan. Well, that's a very narrow-minded position. Uh, I believe Ivan knew he had to consult the Bayars, and the Bayars knew that Ivan had to consult them. That doesn't mean they agreed. Uh, that doesn't mean the Bayars uh, wanted to replace Ivan. Uh, uh, what it does mean is that the process of Ivan's relationship with the Bayars was dynamic. It was constantly changing. It was a matter of, 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 of uh, negotiation. The fact that the Bayards had no legal or constitutional rights is not important because they ha always had influence. Moreover, Ivan has no legal or constitutional rights either. The, the, the limits on his power are matters of custom and, and, and uh, tradition 
uh, and to a certain extent, morality, that is religion. That's not what they argue over. What they argue over is who's giving good advice and who's giving bad advice. What they argue over is who's loyal and who's a traitor. But the premise that Ivan has to cooperate with the Bayars and the Bayars have to serve him loyalty, that premise is not questioned by either side. They are a hereditary aristocracy, although there is some upward and downward social mobility. We know they ain't poor. Uh, they have, uh, just from the amount of, of cash they spend buying land and for the amount of cash they spend making donations to monasteries, they're not poor. Are there some poor buyers? Of course. In any elite, there are going to be people who manage to find a way to become bankrupt. Big deal. Uh, they are influential. And there's one function they serve which Ivan could not do without. They are the military and administrative elite. He has bureaucrats, but they cannot be decision makers. If he wants generals, he wants people to head diplomatic missions, he has to go to the Bayars. They're the only people with the social status and the tradition of exercising leadership. And he knows it. This 16th century Muscovy is within a, a larger historical context of um, reform, state building, centralization, or at least attempts at centralization throughout throughout the region, really, and into the European continent. So, what what type what types of uh, reforms took place under his, important reforms took place under Ivan's reign? Well, in terms of government, he reforms both the central government and local government. And uh, curiously enough, uh, in reforming local government, he relies more on local initiative. Uh, this is something we've learned uh, was common in what supposedly absolutist states. They don't, excuse me, have enough personnel, uh, or they have them, but they can't afford to pay them, to really exercise complete control on the ground. So what you do is you get local social leaders to volunteer. Uh, and this saves you personnel, which you can use for your central government or for your military, and it saves you money. Uh, the two biggest central reforms are in tax collecting and, and police work. Uh, there's always a problem of, uh, again, there's no central police uh, to enforce law and order. Maintaining control over violent criminals is always a problem in early modern Europe. And what he does is authorize the locals to get together and, and set up basically local grand juries, which have the authority to not only catch, but execute known criminals. Uh, this is an extraordinary concession. One of the most prized monopolies of the early modern state is the right of capital punishment. Only the central government can kill people. Ivan and other, other countries as well abrogates that rights to local, mostly local gentry. Uh, if you're going to catch violent criminals, you need to send people who know how to use weapons. <laughs> and that means the gentry, because they have horses and they have, they have swords. The other thing he does revise tax collecting. He lets people, in effect, buy their way out of central tax collection. Uh, he sets the amount of the tax and the locals will collect it themselves. They elect people uh, to manage tax collection just as they elect people to manage chasing bandits. And he gets more revenue out of it, but the locals get to apportion the taxes as they see fit, which is very important. It's a form of local autonomy. These two reforms were accomplished during Yvonne's minority. And they were eventually spread to most of the country, and they're quite effective. One of the reasons that the, the tax reform is so effective is that at the time, the country is quite prosperous. And so the local gentry, the local peasants, local artisans are able to pay higher taxes to get control of the administration of taxes. If they were in dire poverty, they simply couldn't have afforded it. But they're doing quite well. 
The central government, he does something which is uh, uh, engages in a process which is known throughout early modern Europe called bureaucratization. He sets up permanent central government bureaus with professional bureaucrats who are trained in-house, but they are trained. Uh, they set up set forms for for government charters. They pass a new law code. Uh, they uh, regularize and standardize the central government, which is the essence of bureaucratization. Uh, it, in the 16th century under Ivan, it is not the case that Bayars had these central government bureaus. Uh, they influence policy through the royal council. The bureaus are mostly run by non-noble professional bureaucrats uh, whose skills include a high degree of literacy. And as in as everywhere, to the ability to manipulate paper bureaucracy. And thankfully, a lot of those papers have survived without which we would know absolutely nothing about how government functioned. You know, the pivotal moment uh, in many respects of Ivan's rule is when he established this this Aprichnia in 1565, and it lasts about seven years until 1572. What, what is the Aprichnia, and why did Ivan take establish it? Well, the first problem you have to deal with with the Aprichnia is that there's no way to translate the word. If you're going to look at Ivan's reign, you can translate almost everything else. But the word Aprichna and the, the staff of the Aprichna, the Aprichniki, those words have no translations, or the translations are very misleading. Ivan set up, the Aprichna is best conceived of as a state within a state. It's a separate private domain that belongs exclusively to Ivan. It's under his sole personal authority. It is not responsible to the central government. In the Oprichna, Ivan has his own government apparatus, his own staff, uh, and it is answerable only to him. Um, at the same time, Ivan did not totally abrogate his responsibilities to the rest of the country, which was called the land. He uh, admonished the royal council that on major decisions of foreign policy and warfare and such, they were to consult him and he would still be in charge. Uh, but there's a, a geographic and social segregation. The people in the Aprichna are not supposed to socialize with people in the land. And he gives them several very semiotic and symbolic attributes and characteristics. The Oprichniki who are his bodyguard, among other things. They're also his, basically his security police. So that the, the peasants and the artisans who live in the Oprichna are not Oprichniki, they're just taxpayers. The number of Oprichniki is hard to determine. It starts out as 1,000. It may have gone as high as 6,000. It's very difficult to tell. The Oprichna territory expands, we would assume, that that means that the core of Oprichniki expanded as well. The Oprichniki are a very special group. They wear black clothes, they ride black horses, they carry dogs' heads and brooms on the necks of their horses to show that they are the dogs of the Tsar, and they will sweep the land clear, clean of treason. They take a special oath, and some of them belong to a basically pseudo-monastic brotherhood in the de facto capital of the Aprichna, Alexandrovna Sloboda. Ivan leads a separate life in the Aprichna, but the Aprichna and Ivan have authority over the rest of the country. And, and why, does he why does he do this? This is the crucial question. There's no agreement on it, and there are multiple theories. He says he's doing it because he wants to fight treason. My best sense is he didn't need the Aprichna in the form it took to fight treason, uh, no matter how great it was. He already had the authority to deal with traitors without going through all of the symbolic rigmarole he created for the Aprichna. I don't think, therefore, the, pur the purpose was to 
to fight the Bayars. First of all, because I don't think he wanted to fight the Bayars. Second of all, because most of his victims are not Bayars, and there are Bayars in the Aprichina. So that's very uh, confused. I don't think it was to, to fight the Livonian War. You don't fight the war by appropriating 100,000 rubles that's not going to go to the war effort to set up the operation. That strikes me as silly. I think it had to do with his achieving personal autonomy. If he was faced with a dilemma that, to which he could not find a solution, he wanted to be a good ruler and he wanted to be a good Christian. But to be a good ruler, he had to kill people. And that made him a bad Christian. And he's, he's looking for a solution to that in basically not being a ruler. So at one point, he talks about uh, emigrating, fleeing the country, uh, although he blames that on traitors, of course. And at another point, he talks about taking the, becoming a monk. Uh, these are all uh, pseudo techniques for avoiding responsibility for being ruler. The Aprichna is, is one of those, I think. The problem that he faced was he didn't give up power. He remained ruler of the entire country in the Aprichna, and therefore he could not possibly achieve what he wanted by doing it. I mean, it was programmed failure. Uh, because the only way he could really avoid the, uh, the sin of being a ruler was to give up being a ruler, and he wasn't prepared to do that. There were other rulers in Europe at the time who, in effect, faced the same dilemma and did give up power. Uh, they abdicated. They either became monks or, or semi-monks, or they just give up some of their titles. Uh, Ivan is not unique in doing that, nor is he unique in threatening to abdicate to get the political establishment to do what he wants. Uh, I think the king of Sweden threatened to, to abdicate if the country didn't approve the Reformation. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a common, uh, if somewhat theatrical, ruler technique in the 16th century. A hereditary monarchy, that works. In a republic, it doesn't work. You want to resign, resign. We don't care. <laughs> but in a monarch, hereditary monarchy, that, that, that's a good, that's a strong argument uh, you can make. And, and what were the results of this? Uh, the result was disaster. Result, simply enough, the result was disaster. Whatever political opponents Ivan thought he was going to use the appreciation against, the number multiplied because of the appreciation until terror degenerate, until the repression degenerated into mass terror. This is a dynamic of terror which we know from the French Revolution and also, of course, from the Stalinist purges. Terror takes on a momentum of its own. It gets out of hand. And the last phase is always uh, eliminating the terrorists, or what is Stalin called, liquidating the liquidators. In tandem with that, there's a second, there's an, another phase of that, which is that Ivan wanted the Aprishniki to kill the people he told them to kill. They started killing people he didn't tell them to kill. He didn't like that very much. They'd be on to his control, and that's why I think he really did abolish it in 1572. After 1572, he never again resorts to mass terror. And if he didn't resort to mass terror, I don't see that he would have had the need to uh, continue the appreciation. It's also the case, I think, that he never goes back to the symbolic aspects of the appreciation, which I think are not just a masquerade. I think the semiotic elements, and this is something which is a very recent trend in scholarship on Ivan and the appreciation. Semiotic elements are critical to understanding what he was doing. Uh, traditionally, they were treated sort of as a sidebar. Uh, this was just for show. I think the semiotic elements were the appreciation. It was a symbolic semiotic step, uh, which is why all attempts to find a coherent political policy in it have failed. Now, the, it, this period of the Aprichnia after uh, 1572, I mean, the country is just left in ruins, especially economically. What are, what are some of the, the important moments in, in his last 
uh, decade of, of ruling. Well, the biggest problems were were, were were economic and social, although for, unfortunately for the, the amount of social chaos involved is very difficult to, to, to document. If we had local diaries, that would be great. We don't. The biggest impact is 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 economic. Uh, basically, a large portion of the agricultural sector ceases to be productive. You can imagine what effect this must have had on the government and on the gentry. First, there's no tax money. Second of all, they can't pay rent. Rent is what the gentry live on. It enables them to buy horses, to buy weapons, and to fight in the army. The gentry, cavalry, is the backbone of the Muscovite army. If people, gentry, can't afford to serve in the military, he's got no army, which is largely why he loses the Livonian War. He's, he's exhausted his military resources. Uh, the effect on the cities that were looted, like Novgorod and, and the other cities in the Northwest, was also disastrous. For the entire, one of the major problems of all 16th century European countries is, governments, is lack of funds. They're constantly short of money which is why they feud with their aristocracy so much and why they feud with cities so much. Give me more money. Ivan does not have that problem all during the 1550s and 1560s and even be a little bit into the 1570s. By the 1580s, he doesn't have enough money. He's getting contributions from English merchants trading in Muscovy. Contributions is a euphemism, of course. And he's getting the monasteries to kick in money as well. This is a, a, a sign of how badly the economic crisis has affected the government. It's also one of the contributing factors that leads to ensurfment. Ensurfment is a long-term process in Russia, uh, and it is inaccurate to describe the Russian peasants during Ivan's reign as serfs. They are not yet serfs, but the process had begun. And in order to flee their inability to pay rent and their inability to pay taxes, peasants run away. Uh, so Ivan starts, probably in the 1580s, forbidding them to run away for this year. Because he's trying to protect the economic base of both the government and the gentry. Ultimately, the prohibitions annually that they could not run, uh, peasants could not move, becomes permanent. But that doesn't happen until after Ivan's death. And it takes a long time. It doesn't, it's not really complete until 1649. Do you think that if, uh, so I, to ask you about after his death, because he does uh, kill his son. Um, no, he does not no kill his son. Uh, the We have long thought that because among others, the Jesuit whom the Pope sent to Muscovy to negotiate an end to the Limonian War said he did. And there are a lot of other Muscovite sources that said he did. But recently, uh, someone has looked very carefully at the sources and discovered that all of these sources decided Ivan killed his son were written ex post facto. They have a strong time delay. We, and I am, at, at worst, it's still an open question. I'm convinced we cannot conclude that Ivan killed his son, that the stories of how he did so, the circumstances are contradictory, and the sources are biased. What the stories tell us is something which is very important, nevertheless. They tell us that later Muscovites, and certainly foreigners at the time, were ready to believe he did so. And that tells us something about his reputation, but does not tell us that he killed his son. But so my my question was was then this crisis of the uh, the the 1580s up until his death and and granted that it's exacerbated by the fact that you don't have a solid heir. Do you th how much um, efficacy do you give or power do you give to this crisis to the the resulting time of troubles the inability to you know keep things politically stable. I have I have been been 
shall we say, avoiding that question for a long time. And the reason is that it took me so long just to understand what happened when Ivan was alive that I wasn't going to have the energy to deal with what happened after he died. I am less and less convinced that of how much influence Ivan's reign had in causing the time of troubles. Did it have some? Absolutely. Know that because during the time of troubles, the Bayards are looking for monarchs who will swear not to do everything that Ivan did. So that's pretty clear a direct connection. But if you look at, uh, more than I've had time to, if you look at the reign of, of, of his son, Tsar Fyodor, and then you look at the beginning of the reign of Boris Godunov, the economy seems to have recovered fairly well. And that could be attributed very much to the end of the Livonian War, the end of the Aprishna, which are both very expensive, and to the relative... Uh, peace and quiet of, of Fyodor's reign and the beginning of, of Godunov's reign. What really leads directly to the troubles, of course, is the, 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 the crop failures and famines of the early 17th century uh, and the political instability created by, by Godunov's succession because he's not a, 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 of royal blood. So it did create a great economic hardship, which could be overcome, but it also left its mark on society and on government. And that, I think, was more significant in the long run towards causing the troubles because no one wanted to go through that kind of thing again. I mean, we know for a fact none of Ivan's successors imitated the appreciation in fact, none of Ivan's successors in Muscovy and none of Ivan's successors in Imperial Russia used mass terror as a political instrument. So there seems to have been quite a profound social and political consensus that we don't want to do this again. And that surely influences the way everyone acted during the, the time of troubles. You know, as we as we began, Ivan is is always kind of singled out as somewhat exceptional in terms of other rulers in Europe of the time. So how do you compare him with other monarchs of the 16th century? Uh, I reached a conclusion, uh, which, which surprised me, that Ivan is more like, broadly speaking, his contemporary European colleagues than he is like Muscovite rulers who preceded or followed him. Uh, partly this is a function of the fact that he's facing, uh, as we've discussed, kinds of political problems that are endemic to the 16th century, which, say, a 15th century Muscovite ruler wouldn't have had to face. Uh, I don't see a whole lot of difference between Ivan and most of his contemporary rulers. The difference is that in their case, we have much better evidence as to why they were so violent. We have evidence there were revolts. We have evidence there were religious disputes. In Ivan's case, the problem is not that Ivan is more violent, but that we don't have credible explanations for why he was so violent, which makes him look more violent than he was. Even if we discard all of the uh, incredible and fan fantasy atrocity stories, he's still a very violent ruler. Uh, and he's got more than enough blood on his hand to be called terrible. But then again, so did Henry VIII, so did Mary, Mary Tudor, so did Elizabeth. Uh, and there are our English models of, of supposedly good, good guys. Uh, there's something else which I started thinking through only after the book had gone to press. One of the other things that Ivan has more in common with contemporary rulers than he does with his predecessors or successors is I think Ivan is a charismatic ruler the way Henry VIII was, the way Elizabeth Tudor was. Ivan's predecessors and successors on the throne of Muscovy are a pretty colorless lot. Part of that, of course, is not their fault. We don't have the evidence. But Ivan was, if nothing else, a colorful ruler. And when people wrote about him, uh, positively or negatively, they emphasized that they're dealing with Ivan as a person. You can't do that with Vasily III. Uh, you can't do that with Mikhail Romanov. 
even Alexei Romanov for that matter. The next charismatic ruler of Russia is, of course, Peter the Great. So Ivan is also more like his fellow rulers in that respect than he is like what we might call the typical Muscovite ruler. And, and finally, um, you know, in addition to telling the story of Ivan, um, your book is also very much a dialogue with the sources and which with other histories of Ivan the Terrible. So considering that, who is, who is your Ivan? Who is he? I, there are uh, the historiography on Ivan is is so large that if you look for something hard enough, you can find anything. Uh, the standard cliche of people who are uh, most most hostile to him and most apologetic towards him is the same refrain: "You have to separate the man from the myth." Everyone tries to do it. Very few people have succeeded. Uh, I've tried to phrase that problem, to, to reconceptualize that problem. I'm trying to deal with Ivan as a man. A man who is both good and bad at all times, who's always a mixture of, of, of virtue and vice. And a man who changes over time. Uh, does that excuse his actions? No. But it does mean you have to attribute his decisions and his actions to human emotions and human knowledge. Calling him uh, insane or calling him a tyrant doesn't do that. It dehumanizes him. Uh, it treats him as a, an uh, unchanging, uh, stolid uh, caricature. What I try to do, and I'm not qualified to judge whether I've succeeded, is to, is to always treat Ivan as a human being. Sometimes that's very hard, but then again, even the most evil human being is still human, which is a very difficult concept to put into print. It's a hard thing to write. It takes a great deal of work not to fall into the, the, the trap of dehumanizing Ivan, because morally it's it's probably justified but historically it doesn't help us understand Ivan and that was what I was trying to do I've not solved the problem by a long shot but I've done the best I could to address it that was Charles Halperin one of the foremost historians of medieval Muscovy he is an independent scholar and resides in Bloomington Indiana He's written several books on early modern Russia, including Russia and the Golden Horde, The Mongol Impact on Medieval Russian History. His new book is Ivan the Terrible, Free to Reward and Free to Punish, published by the University of Pittsburgh Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for all your continued support and patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org. Until next time, bye. Oh, 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 oh,
Come on, let me break the law. 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 